The following resource is from Christ Community Church. For more information, please visit lovinglord.org. Well, Lord, we, we started off this year on Sunday, January 1st, 2023, worshiping you as a church in this very place. And it's fitting, Father, that we worship you again as a family on this last day of 2023, the Lord's Day, December 31st. Lord, I pray that you would bless our worship as you close out one year and you begin another. Do what only you can do, Father. I I ask that you would move mightily by your Spirit to encourage us, to convict us, to rebuke us, to stir us up toward love and good deeds. Time is yours. You made it, and you call each of us to redeem it in Christ. From our passage in Luke, Father, I I pray you would take all the teachings surrounding Jesus' birth and not only help us understand them, but even more importantly, live in accordance with them. Show us, Father, the glory of this messianic age and the reigning of your Son from his eternal throne. Show us, I pray, Lord, how you expect us to live in obedience to you, having been set free from the power of sin and death and given the love that we have from you in Christ to live for you and to live for others. I ask, Lord, that you would show us that salvation is available to all who would believe and that your judgment is being exercised even this hour. Lord, cause 2024 to be a year when Christ Community Church grows deeper and deeper and deeper in our love for you and our love for one another, I ask that you would do this to bless us and to bring yourself the honor and glory you so deserve. Do that here, Father, and do that in every true church throughout the world, I pray in Christ's holy name. Amen. Amen. 2024 in the Messianic Age. That's the title of your sermon. It's not going to be a New Year's sermon. I'm going to leave that to to Kirk for next Sunday. But we're definitely going to be looking at what Luke taught us in Luke 2 about the events after the birth of Christ and how that is relevant for us today and certainly as we look at the upcoming year. I would argue that one of the greatest lies that has been part of the church since the inception of the church is the idea that a Christian, once they come to a saving grace, has no responsibility to understand or live in accordance with the laws of God. It's an an old heresy that has permeated the church literally since the beginning. Um, The the word to, to essentially say you have grace but you don't obey the law is antinomianism. Antinomianism. That means anti-law or against the law. And that, that term actually became famous by Martin Luther. Martin Luther, the great reformer of the 16th century. He wrote a book in 1539 called Against Antinomianism. And, and the problem was that there were people teaching now that we've been saved by grace through faith. We don't have to worry about the law. We don't have to worry about the teachings of Christ. We don't even have to worry about obeying what Christ taught us. In fact, one of his very good friends, Johannes Agricola, what a great name, Agricola, he taught that to study the gospel itself. 
He believed that any discussion of obedience was outside of what Christ accomplished on the cross. Listen to what Agricola said. He said, the law ought not to be proposed to the people as a rule of manners, nor used in the church as a means of instruction. The gospel alone is to be taught and explained independent of the law of God. Now that's, that's hard, a hard pill to swallow in light of the New Testament and certainly the teachings of it. He went so far as to say that we shouldn't use the law even for conviction and repentance. Listen to this. He said, God sees no sin in believers and they are not bound to confess sin, mourn over sin, or pray that they need to be forgiven. In other words, he believed in one repentance and no repentance at all in the future for Christians. Again, that runs against many passages in the New Testament. So Luther comes along in 1539 and he writes his book against antinomianism and he essentially says, listen, we are saved by grace through faith, not as a result of obedience to law, but, he said, the law is really, really good. He said, it drives us to Christ and in driving us to Christ, we see the glory of God, we repent, we believe, and we want to walk in obedience to God. In other words, he, he uses the law as a means to drive us to the cross so that in our love for Christ, we want to lovingly obey Christ according to his teachings. Now what's strange in this early Reformation struggle, that's a very similar struggle we have in the Western church today, is it not? I mean, in, in many churches sitting in places just like this, they may not teach it directly from the pulpit, but the idea is you're saved by grace and obedience, understanding of the law is not pertinent to you if you are in Christ. And so many will argue that in this messianic age that it's the gospel and disobedience is okay. You say, well, that's, that sounds like a strange Christianity. It is a strange Christianity because it's not Christianity, even though it's what's practiced in many places today. Thankfully, Dr. Luke, he's going to shed some light on this understanding of obedience in the context of the gospel for us this morning. As we look at this period of time right after the birth of Christ, literally the days following the birth of Christ, we're going to see three things. We're going to see, one, <clears throat> that God expects obedience of his people. Number two, we're going to see that salvation is available to all people. And number three, we're going to see that judgment in this age is being exercised, even as we speak. Those are the three things that we will see from this. And my hope is that um, as, as those who love Jesus... And really, I, I, I hope you want to follow him faithfully in 2024 that you're going to hear Luke and say, yes, amen. God expects obedience. Salvation is available. And, and I don't want to come under judgment if that is being exercised in this age. Amen? All right. So the theme of your sermon is this. Jesus came to save and judge. Jesus came to save and judge. Your response to him will determine which one you experience. Jesus came to save and judge in the messianic age and your response to Jesus will determine which one you experience. Point number one, obedience in the messianic age is expected. What is the messianic age? From the moment of Jesus' birth until the moment he comes again in glory, we saw that in the book of Revelation, right? That is the messianic age. You are in the messianic age. How much longer will it last? I have no idea. Christ says that we're not going to know, but you're in it right now. So what are the characteristics, what are the, the big movements in this age that you as a Christian want to know so that you can live wisely in light of these eternal truths? So when we pick up here in Luke 2, verse 21, Jesus is born. 
the Messianic age has begun. And then Luke does something fascinating. In 20 verses, in 20 verses, 21 through 40, Luke talks about the law five times. Five times the, the, um, the Messianic age has begun, and yet he talks about the law, and he actually commends those who are living in obedience to it. Look at verse 21. This, this is immediately following the birth of Christ, verse 21. And at the end of eight days, so eight days from Jesus' birth, when he, Christ, was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. So circumcision, which we know was the sign of the Abrahamic covenant, was required of all male children on the eighth day following their birth, Leviticus 12.3. So Joseph and Mary are being obedient to the law, even though what? The Messianic age has begun. Look at verse 22. And when the time came for their purification according to the laws, the law of Moses, they brought him, Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. Verse 24, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. He said, what is that about? It's real simple. 40 days after the birth, the mother would have to go to the temple and offer a purification sacrifice. Blood contaminated, right? And usually when you have birth, there's blood. Ladies, you know that. And some of you men know that too, and that's why you won't stay in the room when your wife's giving birth. The blood flows, that contaminates the mom, and therefore on the 40th day, they're supposed to go to the temple. And according to the law of Moses, Leviticus 12, verse 3, or verse 8, they're supposed to go in and they're to offer a sacrifice of purification. If you had money, that meant a lamb, a spotless lamb, and either one dove or, or one pigeon. If you didn't have money, like Mary and Joseph, it was two doves or two pigeons. And so they go to the temple and they offer this particular sacrifice for Mary's purification, living in obedience to the law. Additionally, as Jesus was their firstborn son, and she did have other sons and daughters, but Jesus was her firstborn son, she was to present him according to the law in the temple to God. Numbers chapter 3, verse 13, listen. This is the law of God according to Moses. For all the firstborn, God said, are mine. I love that. If you're firstborn, I'm not. But if you're firstborn, that should make you very happy. All the firstborn are mine. On the day I struck down every firstborn in the land of Egypt, I consecrated to myself, I set apart for myself all the firstborn in Israel, both man and beast. They are mine. He says, I am the Lord. So the firstborn belong to God. And so what we see right after the birth of Christ, and, this is, and Luke is trying to make this point, that Joseph and Mary, they are living in strict adherence to the law of God. They get Jesus circumcised on the eighth day. On the 40th day, they go to make sure that she is pure, and then they present Jesus to God as a, a consecration to him. In other words, they are living in obedience to it. In fact, Luke sums up this thought. Look at verse 39. Speaking of Joseph and Mary, Luke says, they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord. And so the messianic age had begun. Christ had arrived and yet, obedience to the law of God was still pleasing to the Lord. Still pleasing to the Lord. So they go into the temple, Joseph and Mary, and they meet a man named Simeon. Look at verse 25. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. 
And this man was righteous and devout. Notice the emphasis on his obedience to God. Waiting for the consolation of Israel. That's a, that's a fancy way of waiting for the, the salvation of God's people. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. In other words, he was going to live until Jesus was born and he actually saw him with his own eyes. Verse 27. And he came in and, and he came in the Spirit into the temple. So the Spirit led him into the temple. And when the parents, Joseph and Mary, brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, verse 28, Simeon, he took him in his arms and he blessed him and he said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen what? Your salvation. He's looking upon the Christ child and he says, my eyes have seen your salvation. This man, a righteous and devout man, a God-fearing man who lived in accordance with the laws of God, is led by the Spirit into the temple to see the Christ. And he says, I've seen the salvation. And now what? Now I can go home in peace. Now you can bring me home. His righteousness and his devoutness and his obedience to God is intentionally magnified by Luke. Why? The Messianic age had begun and yet God was still pleased to see his children live in obedience to the law. Verse 36. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, verse 37, and then as a widow until she was 84. So she lived as a widow most of her life. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. That doesn't mean that she lived in the temple. It just means she was there almost all the time, worshiping God through fasting and through prayer. And so Anna, just like Simeon and Anna, this is the only time they're mentioned in the New Testament. It's the only record that we have. And, and Anna's mentioned in part to, to uh, acknowledge the testimony that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. But she's also mentioned by Luke because she too is righteous and devout. Her whole life was given to the worship of God in the temple, fasting and praying daily until she was 84. And so, again, the Messianic age had begun, and yet we see that obedience in light of the gospel is still pleasing to our Lord. Mary and Joseph, Simeon, Anna, they all participated in the Messianic age at its inception. It had just started. And all three are used by God to reveal the importance of loving obedience to the laws of God in this age. In other words, not antinomianism, not salvation by works, not obedience absent love, but obedience in love. This is what these individuals are noted for and why Luke has them there for us as well as models in this messianic age. If you remember in the, in the following Jesus series, we, we spent several weeks trying to emphasize the importance of those who profess Christ to know and live in accordance with God's word. It was a teaching really uh, very much like Luther's book from 1539 against antinomianism, against you saying, I'm saved by grace through faith. I don't need to know what the Bible says. I don't need to live in accordance with what the Bible says. If you remember, we started off that series in, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, 
Remember what Jesus said? He said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Christianity and the gospel and antinomianism cannot go together. You cannot claim Christ and being saved by grace and say, I have no interest in the law, I have no interest in the Testament, and I have no interest in obeying my, my, my heavenly Father or his Son. You cannot say those things. Now, I'm not going to repeat to you the, the teachings of that series, which I'm sure you're very grateful for, um, but I want you to notice something here. Luke 2 begins, it starts the Messianic age literally with the birth of Jesus. You don't find antinomianism. You don't find licentiousness. You don't even find a disregard for the law of God. You find it heightened by God through Joseph and Mary and Simeon and Anna. In fact, they're all commended in the word of God for their obedience in light of the fact that Christ has come and the Messianic age has started. So that's how the Messianic age starts. And we know how it ends, right? If you were with us during the Revelation series, we know how it ends. Christ coming again in glory, I'll read to you, Revelation 20, 12, listen. John says this, I, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged, what? By what was written in the books according to what they had done. According to what they had done. In other words, the gospel of grace, salvation by grace through faith, is intimately tied to your life in Christ and your obedience to his word. Not antinomianism, not cheap grace, not willful, partial obedience slash disobedience. In the messianic age, my beloved, in which we are in, God expects of his children loving obedience to his word. Now that should not be foreign to you, and yet, Many of us live as though it is. We don't consciously say, I'm saved by grace, I don't need the works. We're not like Agricola. We don't do that. But in many ways, our lives reflect that. A lack of interest in the word of God. A lack of desire to submit to the word of God that we do know. Last month, Kirk and I, we sent out a personal plan for you. I I hope that you have filled that out. If you haven't, I pray you would. A personal plan on how you're gonna follow Jesus. And, and, and what a, instead of having your list of New Year's resolutions, you're going to lose 15 pounds and you're going to watch less TV and you're going to try to read a book or, or two. Instead of those, the personal plan, take that upon yourself. Look at those areas to eat, pray, pray, serve, grow, go. And ask yourself, what am I doing right now to be faithful in these simple New Testament imperatives that I'm called to do by God if I claim Christ then these imperatives are yours and they're glorious and they're good. Take those in light of Mary and Joseph and Simeon and Anna and ask yourself, how faithful will you be in this messianic age to follow your Savior? Not just in word, but in word and in deed. How faithful will you be? You know, in the blink of an eye, we're gonna be right back here at the very end of 2024. I mean, it seemed like we just started 2024. I know it's a factor of age, and as I get older, it seems to go fast. But it's been fast for you too, hasn't it? This year's gone. It'll be like that. Don't let another full year go by 
without you reflecting deeply upon your love for Christ and your desire to bring him the most glory you can in your obedience to him. He is what? He's your master, he's your king, he's your savior, he's your Lord. We can't sing these things Sunday after Sunday and not follow him. And if we do, it reveals something about our hearts. Luke reveals clearly that obedience is expected in the messianic age. We are in the messianic age. If you claim Christ, he expects obedience from you. Now, if you're like me and many Western Christians, you say, I know what I'm supposed to do, but it's hard. I don't have the motivation. I don't have the desire on a daily basis. Mondays are hard. Tuesdays are hard. Let's just face it. The whole week is hard. How do I How do I move through this idea that I'm expected to joyfully obey? Points two and three, I think, give us some really clear answers. Help for you in 2024. Don't be discouraged. Point number two, salvation in the Messianic age is available. It's available. So we heard about the good news of great joy. Remember that the angels declared to the shepherds and they went and saw that Christ was born. And in that moment, for the first time, there was an acknowledgement by many that hope had come to fallen man. That there was an opportunity for man to escape the consequences of his very real present sin and eternal death. When Joseph and Mary, when they went into the temple to present the Christ child, look at, look at verse 23. He was to be presented. Now this is in accordance with Numbers 3. He was presented to God to be called holy to the Lord. That's, that's set apart for the service of the Lord. No man has been consecrated. In fact, we could argue that Jesus being presented in the temple, according to Numbers chapter 3, he's the consummation, right? He's the last significant Israeli son, firstborn son to be presented in the temple, being consecrated to God. Now, if you remember, um, we did this actually several years ago, maybe, maybe more than that now. When we were studying Exodus, remember in the plagues? Remember that tenth plague? That was the plague that convinced Pharaoh to let God's people go. That tenth plague was a plague of death on all firstborn in Egypt. We know that. And it was the death of the firstborn in Egypt that compelled Pharaoh to do what? To let God's people go free here my beloved that firstborn is christ and he's being consecrated to god not so that you can be struck down but that you might be saved through his being struck down 1500 years from the time of the first passover to this moment in the temple jesus is being presented to god as the means by which we too can be set free. He's going to be the firstborn son that does a work that releases us from the slavery of sin and death. That's the mission, that's why he came, right? If If you look at verse 25, Simeon says that the consolation of Israel, that's Christ in the gospel. He talks about the Lord's Christ, that's the Messiah coming to do what? Verse 30, to bring salvation, to bring salvation to sinful man, to bring salvation to you. That's why Christ came as the firstborn son. And not just Israel, but for all people. Look at verse 32. This firstborn son who was set apart by God to bring salvation to mankind 
would be a light, verse 32, for revelation to Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And so Jesus' coming means hope for all people. Glory for Israel because Israel had been talking about his coming for 2,000 years and he had come. And glory for you if you're not a Jew because the gospel is for you as well. It's for all who repent and put their faith in this firstborn son. This was the hope that was shared to Mary and Joseph and Elizabeth and Zechariah and the shepherds on that night. It's the hope that was shared to Simeon and it's the hope that was shared to Anna. Look at, look at the prophetess, verse 38. Luke tells us that she was coming up, that she was coming up to the temple at the very hour, the, the very hour that Mary and Joseph are there consecrating Jesus the Lord, Anna just happens to show up by chance, right? Of course not. She's led in by the Spirit of God, verse 30. Verse 38, I'm sorry, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him, of Christ, to all who are waiting for the redemption of Israel. So Anna, a prophetess, led by the power of the Holy Spirit, goes into the temple, she sees the Christ, and she begins to tell everybody. She's, she's one of the first evangelists. She's telling everybody that the Savior was here in the flesh, God's son in the flesh. She gives thanks to God for sending Christ in the flesh and then she tells everybody what? Salvation is available. Hope is here for Jew and Gentile, for all who would repent and believe. And this, my beloved, this is, this is why God can expect obedience from his children. He can expect us to obey. The consolation of Israel, the, the salvation of the Messiah, the redemption of Jerusalem, all these prophetic statements point to the fact that the mission that God set Jesus on is to redeem us. Not just in the Western church, we talk about salvation always in the context of personal sin. Your personal sins will be forgiven. Of course, and that's true, and that's glorious. But that's not the full redemption of you or the church. God came to set us free from our sins that we might what? Then live in holiness to him. So when you think about salvation by grace through faith, don't think of it just in terms of your sins being forgiven. Think of your sins being forgiven by the blood of Christ and you being made holy. You being set apart to be a holy son or a holy daughter or a holy church for the glory of God. You see, before the Exodus, Pharaoh he refused to let God's people go free. He kept them bound. Nine plagues came and they went and Pharaoh still said, no, your people cannot go. He refused what? Pharaoh refused to submit to the word of God. God spoke, Pharaoh said, no, I will not obey. And so during the 10th plague, when God finally struck down all the firstborn of Egypt, Pharaoh finally submitted to the word of God, and he set God's people free. So when we arrive here 1,500 years later in the temple, Jesus, God's firstborn son, is put in harm's way. He subjects himself to the very wrath of God to what? To be struck down just like the firstborn in Egypt, to be crushed by God so that, listen with all your might, so that all those who put their faith in him all of us who rebel against God's word every day will be forgiven of our sins and granted mercy 
instead of judgment. Jesus Christ, the firstborn son that deserved to be glorified, was crushed like those in Egypt so that you, a sinner deserving of judgment, someone who willfully rebels against God's word, can be given grace and mercy and set free from what? Not set free from Pharaoh, but set free from the power of sin and the power of death that you might in love live a holy life. Yes, that, that is your plan, my beloved. You've been set free in Christ in love to joyfully follow him. When Simeon sees the Christ child and he takes him up and he lifts him up, it's just like the priest who would take the lamb who would be sacrificed in the temple. Sacrifice for sins. He's, he's acting as a priest. The salvation that brings light to the Gentiles and glory to the people of God, it came through the broken body and spilled blood of the firstborn son. It came through the Christ, the Messiah, the God-man, the baby born of the Virgin Mary. He's the only man ever born for the distinct purpose of death. You know that. All of us were born to live forever, but because of our sin, we subjected ourselves to death. Jesus Christ, the sinless man, is the only man ever born to die for you and for me so that our sins might be forgiven and that we might walk in righteousness. On the cross, Jesus would pay for our sins in full and he made it possible for the Father who is holy to pardon us, right? God who is holy cannot pardon your sin unless your sins are paid for. So Jesus paid for those sins so that God could not only pardon you, but in your pardon, cultivate in you a heart so radically transformed by the love of Jesus that you want to, you want to obey more than you want to disobey. You want to follow Christ more than you want to follow the world or your flesh or Satan himself. Being saved by grace means that you get a new heart. It means that you're empowered by the Holy Spirit. It means that if you're wise, you come into the family of God. You come into a local church where you can serve and grow and love and be loved and bless others. We often miss that side, don't we? We get so focused on the forgiveness of our sins, we forget about the result of that, which is you, transformed. What did Peter say? 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. He said this of the church. You are, right now, it's in the present tense, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a what? A holy nation. And then he says this, my favorite part, God's special possession. You out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. God's special possession possession called out of the darkness redeemed from sin and death that you might walk in the light of life and in so doing the entire world sees you the world sees us and they know that something supernatural has taken place that God's done something in us to compel us to be as we are a chosen people royal priesthood holy nation God's special possession you know what that means right that means Dearly loved, deeply loved by God the Father because of your union to his son, Jesus Christ. Deeply loved 
even when you were in your sins. Deeply loved even when you sin and you struggle and you stumble now. Deeply, forever, eternally loved. A love so radical that to taste it, to touch it, transforms you. It's that powerful. God's special possession is who you are if you are in Christ. A transformed heart which leads to a transformed life should be expected if you have been what? Transformed by Christ. It's such an odd thing that we have to talk about it so much today in the church. There is so much disobedience in the church. But if you've been touched by the love of God, then you are different. Henry Newman, the 20th century Catholic theologian, he put it like this. He said, I cannot continuously say no to this or no to that unless there is something 10 times more attractive to choose. Right? When we think about obedience to Christ, we try to do it by our own willpower and our own strength, and we fail. He continues, he's saying no to my lust, my greed, my needs, and the world's powers takes an enormous amount of energy, and I fail. The only hope is to find something so obviously real and attractive that I can devote all my energies to saying yes. One such thing I can say yes to is when I come to touch the fact that I am loved by God. And then he says, once I have found that in my total brokenness, that I am still loved by God, I become free to live as God has called me to live. That's brilliant. John Johnston wrote a book called Courage, and he tells this anecdotal story that is so appropriate about the transformative power of love in our lives. I'll just paraphrase it for you. Ted Stollard and Ms. Thompson, they're the, the two primary characters in the story. Ted Stollard's mother died when he was in third grade, and Ms. Thompson had him as a fifth grader. Um, she had very little compassion on this man's plight, this young man's plight. Ted was described as sloppy, homely, expressionless, slow to learn, and gave very little effort in his studies. Christmas time came around, and all the children brought gifts for their present. They, they came up after class, the last day of class before the break, and they put all their gifts on Miss Thompson's desk. She opened them one by one. She looked over at Ted's gift. It was wrapped in brown paper and had scotch tape over it. When she opened up Ted's gift, a gaudy rhinestone bracelet with many of the pieces missing fell out and a half bottle of cheap perfume. The child began to laugh, and so Miss Thompson, she silenced them by splashing some perfume on her wrist and having them smell it, and then she put on the bracelet as well. At the end of the day, Ted came up to her desk and he said, Miss Thompson, you smell just like my mom. And the bracelet looked really pretty on you. And he said, I'm glad you like my present. He left the room and Miss Thompson got down on her knees and she begged God to forgive her heart, which was so hard toward this boy. She asked God to change her and to give her compassion for every child in her classroom, especially those who struggled.
After the Christmas break, the children were greeted by a different teacher. She was kinder, she was gentler, and she had a greater love for those who were least and last in her class. Surprisingly, or maybe not so surprisingly, this love that she expressed toward Ted began to change Ted. Throughout the rest of the year, he not only caught up with his students, but he passed many before the year's end. He left her class, time came and went, and Miss Thompson had heard nothing from Ted for some time, and then one day she received this note. I said I wasn't going to get emotional, and there was no way that was going to happen. Dear Miss Thompson, I want you to be the first to know I'll be graduating high school, second in my class. Love, Ted. Four years later, another note arrived. Dear Miss Thompson, the university just told me I'll be graduating first in my class. I wanted you to be the first to know. Love, Ted. Four years later, dear Miss Thompson, as of today, I am Theodore Stollard, MD. How about that? I wanted you to be the first to know. Love, Ted. Ted's love for Miss Thompson changed her heart. Miss Thompson's love for Ted changed his life. Love, my beloved, has the power to do that. During this messianic age, God expects obedience from all those who claim Christ, not obedience from our willpower or our fortitude, but because we are so deeply and radically loved by Him. Our obedience is a product of God's love for us in Christ, His perfect, never-ending, never-broken love. Even in our sin, even in our rebellion, And that's why he can expect us to obey and want to obey joyfully the teachings of our Lord. Like Ted's love for Miss Thompson and Miss Thompson's love for Ted, it has the power to change us. It has the power to compel us in love to obey. The firstborn in Egypt died so God's people could go free God's firstborn son, Jesus Christ, died so you could go free. And if you know Christ, you've died to yourself. The old ways, the sinful, disobedient, antinomian lives you used to live are gone. So that you can live how? Now, new. The new creature, deeply, eternally loved by God the Father in his son, Jesus Christ. It's easy to see why God expects us to obey because we're so radically loved by Him in His Son. Amen? All right, so number one, obedience is expected in the Messianic age. Number two, salvation is available to all who repent and believe. And I have one more before we close. Judgment in the Messianic age is exercised. It is being exercised in real time. Look at verse 28. Luke tells us, Simeon, we're back in the temple. Simeon took him, the baby, Jesus, he took him up in his arms and he blessed God and he said, look at verse 30, my eyes have seen your salvation. He had lived to see Christ who would bring salvation to Israel and to all mankind. And then, still speaking by the power of the Holy Spirit, he not only announces the salvation that Christ would bring, but he announces judgment too. Look at verse 33. 
And his father and his mother, Joseph and Mary, marveled at what was said about him, about Jesus. Verse 34, and Simeon blessed them and he said to Mary, his mother, so he's talking directly to Mary now, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. In other words, my beloved, the coming of the Messianic age was not just all salvation. It was not just all hope. It includes the judgment that God would bring for all those who rejected Christ, the sign. Now I know in the, in the Western church, we, we have a tendency to downplay this side. We like to talk about the grace and the love and the salvation that Christ offers, but we don't like to talk about the judgment. And yet, in the New Testament, we see them side by side all the time. This understanding that Jesus was appointed, of course he was appointed to raise many up, He was appointed to raise us up out of darkness, out of sin, out of death, into light and life and eternal life with him. We love to talk about that, and we should love to talk about that. But there's another side to this messianic age that we have to be aware of, not only for ourselves and those in this church, but certainly for the lost in our lives. Jesus Christ was appointed by God, listen, to be the instrument that many would stumble over and perish. It was Christ and the gospel that would be the cause for many to reject God and instead of being saved, suffer eternal damnation. He is the sign. The gospel that he brought is the sign. And it says those who opposed it would destroy themselves. Now this was not new to Israel. Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 8, centuries before Christ came, talked about Jesus Christ being the stone that they would stumble over. Listen Isaiah chapter 8, verses 14 and 15. Isaiah says, He, speaking of the Messiah, speaking of the Christ, He will be a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. Many of them will stumble. They will fall and be broken on Christ. You see, the salvation that God offers by grace through faith in the Son, when it is rejected, when that offer is The response to that offer is, no, 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 Lord. I will not be saved. I will not put my faith in Christ. I will stand upon my own works and my own glory, which is what many of the Jews did. They would not put their faith in the work of Christ, the Son of God. They wanted to put their faith in their own works. So they rejected the Son. They rejected the gospel. Paul elaborates on this in Romans 9. Listen with all your might. He said, the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it. A righteousness that is what? By faith. Not by works. But then he says this, but the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Why not? Paul says, because they pursued righteousness not by faith but by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written. See, I lay in Zion, that's Jerusalem, a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. And so Christ and the gospel are presented by Luke as this rock or this stone. And there's only two ways to approach it. You're either by faith going to ascend that rock and stand upon it and put all your faith and hope in Christ to save you or you're gonna run into that rock, reject Christ, reject the gospel and be crushed by it. Only two. Everybody must approach the rock and everybody approaches the rock in one of those two ways. 
Simeon continues speaking to Mary. Look at verse 35. He said to her, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. The rejection of God's Son who came to set men free, the very rejection itself will reveal the hearts of many. Either your love for God through your faith in Christ or your hatred for God in your rejection of Christ. It's fascinating to me, you know, the, why didn't the Jews just hear what Jesus had to say as another rabbi, another rabboni, giving his great teachings and just say, all right, we don't, we don't believe that. Why didn't they just hear his teachings and go their own way? You know why? They understood what he was saying. It was an exclusive authoritative message. He was saying, listen, there's only one way to come to the Father and that's through me. Christ is saying, my work on the cross, you being saved by grace through faith, not your own works, not your adherence to the law. They hated that. And then he, of course, what? We know he claimed to be God. He claimed to be the Messiah and the King, having authority over the heavens and the earth and every single soul ever born. So those who refused to submit, those who said we will rely upon our own good works to put God in our debt, we will not recognize Christ as Lord and Savior and King, those who did that, they opened their hearts up for God and the world to see. Instead of bowing down and worshiping Jesus, which is what they should have done, this is the Son of God. They took him and they pierced him. They pierced him through by nailing him to a Roman cross. And Luke is, is telling us the dialogue Simeon had with Mary. He's saying to Mary, your soul is going to be pierced through too. Why? She's going to witness. She's going to witness her own son. Unjustly charged. Brutally beaten to a point beyond recognition. And then nailed to a cross suffering. The humiliation of that type of death. Now, any mom would mourn over her son being treated like that, but Mary knew Christ to be what? Sinless. She witnessed her son who did nothing but love people perfectly. Every person Christ came into contact with, he loved them perfectly, and his end was the cross, and so her heart was run through, seeing her son suffer as he did. They may not have understood the details, my beloved, in that moment, but they would soon understand that Christ, his body, his soul, would be pierced through by those who opposed him. Years later, before his crucifixion, Jesus tells this parable to all, to the Jews certainly, but to all those who would reject him as the Christ, who would say, if you deny me as the rock, then the rock will crush you. Listen to this. This is from Matthew 21. It's a great parable and a great story. Jesus is speaking. He says, there was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants. He's talking about Jerusalem, the holy city. And then, the master went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Speaking, of course, of 
the prophets. Again, the master sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, the master sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw that the son had come, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Listen, come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him, and they threw him out of the vineyard, and they killed him, speaking of Christ being crucified outside the city. Jesus then says, when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do with those tenants? He asked the crowd this question, the Jews in particular. They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants, speaking of Gentiles, who will give him the fruits of their seasons. And then Jesus said to them, have you never read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And they realized in that moment that he was talking about them. And then they decided to kill him. They fulfilled the prophecy. Friends, for 2,000 years, millions and millions of people have either been raised up or crushed by the rock of Christ. For 2,000 years, those who have come to Jesus as Lord and Savior, those who have put their hope and faith in his work and not their own, they've been forgiven by God. They've been reclaimed as sons and daughters of the Father. And they enjoy right now and for eternity, eternal life. They have intimacy with God through Christ. And their lives reflect it. True Christians' lives reflect their intimacy with God their obedience to the word of God. Those who have rejected Christ for the past 2,000 years today and until he comes, either, listen, either with their mouths or with their lives. See, there are many in the church who reject Christ too. We, we make professions, we get baptized, we go to church, but the way we live is a rejection of Christ as Lord and King. Their hearts are revealed Their hearts are revealed to people and I would argue that their hearts are probably revealed to themselves. They probably know that they're just going through the motions of Christianity, that they still stand in opposition to the Son, to His rule, and to His offer of salvation by grace through faith, not their own good works. 2024 will be no different. Some will rise in their salvation by grace through faith, and many others will fall. The question you want to ask yourself as we close on this last day of 2023, the question you want to ask yourself is, what have you built your life on? What are you standing on this very day? Are you standing upon the rock of Christ, His work, or are you still running up against it? regardless of the profession that you've made, living in disobedience to his clear teachings. Matthew chapter 7, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them, key, will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock, on Christ. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house. That's, of course, judgment day. 
But it, the house did not fall because it has been founded upon the rock. It had been founded upon Christ. That's the salvation that Simeon was talking about. That's the redemption of Israel that Anna was talking about. Verse 26 of Matthew 7. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Friends, your profession of faith in Jesus Christ going into 2024 means absolutely nothing if you hear and do not do. It means nothing. I say that in utter love. Profession, apart from obedience, is not saving faith. To build your life on the rock of Christ is to hear and do. It's to understand and obey. Why? Because you want to. Why? Because you're so deeply, profoundly, and eternally loved. You want to. So when your friends ask you, why don't you live as you used to live? You said, I can't. I'm compelled by the love of Christ to follow Christ and obey Christ. I'm compelled in love to obey. To hear the word of God and not obey, which I fear is the state of many in the Western church today, is to be deceived. It is to think that Christ is your rock when in fact your hope is is on the sand because you really are still living for you, your wants, your desires, your kingdom, your glory, not the glory of God. On this last day of 2023, ask God to give you a deep reflection into the state of your heart and the life that you are building. It's either on the rock or it's on the sand. There's no other place to build. It's either on the work that Christ has accomplished for you or the work that you're trying to accomplish for yourself. On this last day of 2023, reflect on this because on the last day of the messianic age, the rain will fall, the floods will come, and the wind will blow, and then it will be too late to reflect. You'll either be on the rock of Christ and your whole life, remember your life in the books is recorded, will testify to your faith. Or you will stand firmly upon that sand and you will be struck down by the wind. You'll be crushed by the rock. You will be destroyed as the firstborn were in Egypt for your life of disobedience to the word of God. I pray that 2024 is not just another year for you. I pray it's not another year of wasted time. I pray it's not another year of clear disobedience to the joyful commands of God. In 2024, I want you to work really hard to see and feel and experience God's love. Work really hard to draw near to him and to know him as your father and Christ as your brother and the spirit is, work really hard to experience that love in a very tangible way on a day-to-day basis and then all the commands of God that you grow to learn and know will be something that you long to obey. My beloved, this, this year is to be redeemed by us. The best way to redeem it is to understand and experience the love of God more and more. Because if you do, my beloved, 
then you will desire to follow Jesus. You'll desire to obey. You'll want to know the word. You'll want to obey the word. You'll want to pray. You'll want to bless the church. You'll want to serve the church. You'll want to grow the church. You'll want to share the gospel and make disciples. You'll want to see your friends saved. I won't have to tell you. You won't have to have anybody else tell you. You will want to do it and you will do it because you know Christ's love like that. What a, what a great way to start the new year. Be captivated completely by the love of God in your life. And you will follow Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, do this for us, please. So many distractions in this world. So much bad teaching in the church that calls us to the gospel and not to obedience. We're so thankful that salvation is available during this time, during the Messianic age. We're so thankful, Lord, for all those that we know, including ourselves, that you have redeemed by grace through faith, that you've taken off the sand and you've placed us firmly upon the rock of Christ. Thankful, Lord. I pray that 2024 would be the greatest year this church has ever seen. that we as a people find ourselves growing deeper and deeper in our love for you and as a result being more faithful servants to you. That we would see our family and friends saved because they hear the gospel from our lips and they see it in our lives. That we would impact this community as the lampstand that you have called us to be. Father, bless our church like that. Bless it for us, bless it for the lost in our mission field, and bless it for your glory. Make 2024 a year truly to be remembered. I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Christ Community Church is a Reformed Baptist church in San Jose, California. If you'd like more information on our church, please visit lovinglord.org. From there, you can find service times, weekly gatherings, our sermon archive, and other resources. For video content, please visit our YouTube channel. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you again for listening.